my career was getting ready to take a hard right turn, and I didn't see it coming. My father and I, we would get together on occasion, eat lunch. I'd be in town working at the same location, and he, one day we're out eating lunch, and just quiet, just you could tell something was just really on his mind. He ended up addressing some financial irregularities. At the end of that, he got thanked by by being asked to leave the company. Being asked is the right term, involuntarily, and I ended up being collateral damage. We kept looking for a job. And you know, one day I just called him and I said, what do you think about starting our own sheet plant? Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. We're super excited today to welcome Gary Brewer, Package Crafters founder and president, to a podcast today. Yeah, Gary is somebody that I think we've both gotten to know over the last number of years through AICC, and I think he's got a great story to tell and going to bring a lot of value to our listeners. I'm glad you're doing this. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. So if you ever felt like you were in dire straits and needed to bury a body, asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently you can get a heavy-duty jumbo box from Oxbox. Definitely strength you can depend on. www.oxbox.com. Let's get back to the show. Gary, before we really dig in, can you just touch on what you guys do as a company, where you're located, who you service? Sure, Joe. Package Crafters is a company that, that I started along with a handful of other people. 20 years ago, this year is our 20th year. We're a we're in High Point, North Carolina, predominantly industrial packaging, brown boxes, with a little bit of color, right? A little bit of POP display work. I do like to run a lot of very large format boxes there in North Carolina, and then we'll talk about this later. But the other company that I acquired a few years back, Creative Packaging, is in Savannah, Georgia. That company was founded in 1996. I acquired it in 2015. It is more on the color or POP side of things and some industrial packaging. Awesome. Let's dive in. What was your big picture goal going into NC State? And was it to get into corrugated? Or what, like, what was your dream job at the time? Just to become an engineer. That, that's my mind, the technical mindset, right? And solving problems, fixing things, cause and effect, right? So... I was at NC State in the pulp and paper science program and chemical engineering program. Pulp and paper science graduated with 13 people from North Carolina State University in that major. So basically anybody could get in that program. Well, that's my backdoor to engineering. So that's what I really wanted to be. Did you really? And that's part of the story, too. But uh, what do you mean? Part of the you were dead set on engineering. That's what you were going to do. So what happened? So I became an engineer. Oh, okay. You know, NC State is fairly competitive to get into engineering school. And so I found this program, Pulp and Paper Science and Technology, and I wanted to be a chemical engineer. And it really is specialized chemical engineering. Gotcha. That's really what Pulp and Paper Science is. Yeah. And so I said, okay, I can get in. I stay one extra semester, and I get out with two BS degrees. Wow. And I said, okay, that gives me a little flexibility. And so that's the path I took. And it was a little bit of a back door. I didn't have to apply with the masses and shine. If you go this way, you're automatically in. So that's the path I chose. You have to have been a good student to double major in in just engineering in and of itself. Very math 
focused. Oh, and yeah. and then you marry the chemical aspect. Of that obviously you just a good student growing up. No, I would say I was not a good student. <laughs> really, I was a night before the test kind of guy. <laughs> Interesting. Look at you. Um, so just some natural brains. I don't know about that, but it's more about the discipline. More about the discipline. So you choose that kind of a path couldn't play club sports, I couldn't be in a fraternity, and all that stuff. I had to focus. And then, of course, I've got two roommates. One's a business major, the other one's like landscape architecture. When we're living together, they're on the couch, propped up, watching Miami Vice. And so I have to leave. Yeah. And get away because because of the distraction. So I'm at the library almost every night. Did you go through the traditional career planning? Did you start doing a lot of on-campus interviewing? Were you finding success in that double major? So what was very interesting, so in pulp and paper, I said I graduated with 13. Only two of us were double majors, me and my buddy Mike Jackson. We were basically spoiled, but anyway, in the pulp and paper program, all your majors came to interview on campus. GP, IP, you name it, they came and it was as simple as signing up on a sheet. Do I want to interview with GP? Just as simple as that. After you interview, you either got a thin envelope or a thick envelope. The thin envelope was a Dear John letter. The thick envelope <laughs> was, here's an offer. Mm -hmm. So who'd you interview with? I can't remember everybody that I interviewed with. GP, I think Champion at the time. They're names that are yes. no longer around anymore. Oh, Sunoco. Yeah. Yeah, Sunoco. Um, and... The company that I ended up going to work for, St. Joe, St. Joe Forest Products, who's obviously no longer What'd they have you doing right out of the gate? Process engineer was the official title. So process management, project work, troubleshooting, improving the process, right? Capital expenditure a little bit. And you would start in certain areas, right? They would place you in an area, say the pulp mill area, and you'd spend a couple of years there, transfer you to the bleach plant area, transfer you to power and recovery, transfer you to paper machines. And then through all that, you end up being a shift supervisor. So, you know, I actually worked a rotating southern swing shift and did all of that. This is still mid-90s at this yeah, point? Yeah, this is 92 to 97. What's yeah. wild to me in that space, and I've got a history hiring engineers entry level, that the brain is so process map, process driven solutions driven yet in virtually all the experiences i've had with hiring people in those roles mm -hmm. it's so gray matter it's just hey gary here's your spot and go watch the process and go find some things that we could we can improve mm -hmm. upon and then they come back and they're like all right gary then go fix go tell us what you're going to do to fix that so yeah. you take people who are so analytically minded right. and creative and then you marry that against all of this intangible gray space. It's just go fix that. And virtually all of them just embrace that dynamic. Were you enjoying it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Being able to make an impact, being able to analyze something, look at the data, make an impact, hopefully improve the process via cost savings or labor savings or whatever, you know. Got to think you're dealing with people in the manufacturing environment who are significantly older than you and Absolutely. here you are learning this business. How did you manage through the interpersonal dynamics of stuff like that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, when you walk into a control room at a paper mill, there's guys with 40 years of experience, right? You're fresh out of college, so you have to be pretty humble about that. It's almost like being mentored. You come onto the scene being highly educated in comparison. And so 
you already maybe have a little bit of a strike against you, right? You don't have the real world experience. You have to be humble and in talking to those folks and from them building their trust, right? It's like building a friendship, right? That's really what it comes down to. The deeper that friendship goes, the more they're willing to help you, the more they're willing to share their information with you, and vice versa, because I'm the new kid on the block. Did you have to learn that the hard way? Is there, was there things that happened early on, or did you have somebody who threw an arm around you and said, stick with me, kid? No, I didn't have that. We got moved around a lot. Always In each area that you were in, you always had a department head. And at that time, that department head would be your mentor. But then, particularly when I became supervisor, I would go around with a foreman. It wasn't just me. I was mentoring that foreman, and that foreman is somebody that probably came up most likely all the way through the helper to operator and then made it to foreman. And so that was the person I shadowed. It'd be like shadowing a doctor. So how did you manage the dynamic of being a younger person in a supervisor role at that time, probably working with people that have been on the floor for 20, 30 years? Yeah, you just, you have to, again, you have to be humble, right? You have to suggest things that you see here in the process and get those folks that you're talking to to acknowledge or agree with you or disagree and get them to open up open up because you've got an end goal in mind and that's to improve the process it's all about getting buy-in yeah what was your end goal at that time in your life you're probably 24 25 were there any entrepreneurial thoughts in your mind or were you just trying to do the best you could for your employer at the time so most engineers are not engineers after about seven years and that was on the wall at North Carolina State University. One of the sayings was we would calculate things to the sixth decimal place and then we would double it for love. That was, that's a very <laughs> true statement, right? But, and another thing was most engineers are not engineers after seven years. And my goal was to be in management in some kind of manufacturing industry. So I was at St. Joe as a process engineer for a total of five years. And then as I'm going through that process, I, my perception of the workplace at that time was what well, used to be get a degree to get ahead in life. And then I was of the perception, get an advanced degree to get even further ahead. So I said, okay. I was in Florida. I acted as a contractor and I built my own first house, work all day, come home, get on the phone. Why didn't you show up on the job today? When are you going to be back? Just managing that whole process, right? I made the decision, I'm going to go to graduate school, get a master's in business, right? And I said, okay, I'm going to sell my house, I'm going to take the profit, become a full-time student, get my MBA, re-enter the workforce. That was my goal. These guys, I just love these guys, these engineers, because I'm not one. And it's just, yeah, I'm just GC my own house. Yeah, just so yeah. I've got some yeah. spare time. <laughs> Jenny's in a long-term date right now with you. <laughs> I had been through it. My parents had done the same thing when I was like 10. Was your dad an engineer? No, he's an accountant by nature. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Amen to the accountants, baby. That's all we ever did. Accounting, controller type positions. He was in the textile industry. And we jumped around a lot, all within the state of North Carolina. In his career path, you had to move to get ahead in life. That's how you got promoted take another plant, go a different place. So anyway, so he left the textile industry and he answers literally an ad in a paper for a controller for a box plant in North Carolina. So that's how he gets into the industry. It was, this company was probably at the time, the largest independent in the Carolinas. And 
two corrugators and probably a billion square feet annually. Mm. And they didn't have a computer system. They paid their invoices by the height of the pile in accounts <laughs> payable. So anyway, so he, he joined them and got to be friends with the president. Um, and then that president had a son younger than me, and they're always talking, sharing stories. So my father was keeping him apprised of what I was doing. I'd taken the GMAT, right? And I said, well, I'm only going to do this if I can get into a really good school. I was aiming high, right? Top 10 school, whether I was going to get in or not, some other thing. So I had applied to Duke University, and Duke said, come interview. I was like, okay. And the president of this company in North Carolina knew about this, and he goes, have your son come talk to me. Okay. My father, he had a perception that I, I knew nothing about the corrugated box business. He had this perception that I was this engineer in a laboratory testing paper all day, right? So anyway, I fly up and go interview at Duke, and then I drive over and meet the president of this company. He goes, so I understand you want to go back to school. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, my raw material made a half million tons a year line aboard in my life. He goes, you know my raw material like nobody else. I want you to be a paper salesman's worst nightmare. I want to hire you. I'm going to pay for your school, and I don't care where you live. And I go, you've got a deal. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. And I didn't see it coming. You'd never met the guy prior to that? I had met the guy socially. We had gone on some trips together and... So he knew me, knew how I was wired. We used to like to go down to Daytona to the 24-hour endurance yeah. race. We were into cars. So he, he had been around me a little bit. I leave out of there and go, it's like I'm leaving Florida, and I'm now in the corrugated box business. How old are you at the time? 27. Uh, married yet or no? Let's see. No, not married yet. Not married yet. Who was that gentleman providing you that chance? Paul Engel. It's amazing. Yep. Yep. And I guess he had the foresight to recognize where I came from and what I was about and was yeah. comfortable with me and it was a good benefit. I knew his raw material like nobody else. It's rare to have somebody transition from the mill side making paper for a living and go to the corrugated box side rare. So did you go to work then with your dad? In the global picture, yes, but I made a conscious decision. We had two facilities probably 80 miles apart. I said, I'm going to the one that he's not at. People are either going to like me or not for who I am, not who I'm related to. So that's the route I chose. And we were in different areas. And in the meantime, I ended up going to Wake Forest University for my MBA at night. So for the first two and a half years of my career, I was working during the day and at night I would go to class and not married, no kids. And so I just round robin this thing and I would drive between the plants and spend the night and two and a half years worth of that. And I did get married at the very end of it. His foresight and vision to have you in that role, was he pleased with that decision and what you brought to the company? Yes, it was the president and my father as CFO. He was CFO at this time. And the president had a son who's a little bit younger than me, and implied path was when those two ride off into the sunset, we would be the two that would take over. That was the intent. At the time, were you thinking along those same lines? or It was. Yeah, it was. Uh, I learned a lot, right? I knew nothing about the corrugated box industry prior to joining, even though my father was their CFO. But... Learned a lot, started out buying raw materials, then went to capital equipment, the production side of it. The only side I didn't get was sales. That was 
But that was my intention, and I did that for about four years. So two and a half in school, yeah, two and, and half, then another year and a half. Yep. Uh huh. Yep. And then I didn't see it coming, but I had a. Oh, I gotta think of the right term. My career was getting ready to take a hard right turn, and I didn't see it coming. My father and I, we would get together on occasion, eat lunch. I'd be in town working at the same location, and he. One day we're out eating lunch and just quiet, just you could tell something was just really on his mind. And I just looked at him and I said, I don't know what's on your mind, but whatever it is, you need to address it. And that was it, no details. So what he ended up doing, and let me say this, being a financial guy, my, my father is as honest as the day is long, right? If he owes you a dollar, Gene, he's going, here's your dollar, Gene. If you owe him, he's going to say, Gene, where's my dollar? That's the way he is. He ended up addressing some financial irregularities. At the end of that, he, and we were both shareholders at the time, he got thanked by, by being asked to leave the company. So I say being asked is the right term, involuntarily, and I ended up being collateral damage. Just because of your relationship? Yep. And a shareholder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we just reverse? So... When your dad joined as CFO, was he a shareholder? No, he earned that spot. And so how did the owner or owners of the business provide a runway for you two to take some ownership in the company? It was another gentleman that departed the company. My father offered to buy his shares and he sold them. And then my father sold me a handful of shares. It was a closely held corporation. Yes. And they were open, whoever the other shareholders were, they didn't want to purchase them. They were open to you all right. buying in. Yeah, it was just kind of who's selling, who's buying. It's it kind of nice until you're involuntarily asked to leave the company. Yeah. And so you were, as you said, collateral damage. So yep. you were out as a package. Absolutely. Was that trying time for the two of you while all that was being unpacked and oh, yeah. aired out? Oh, yeah. Very trying. Very tense, very stressful. Not between the two of you, between no, not the two of you and your employer. Yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, when it all happened, it felt like a severe right turn in my career because what I've said, what I thought was going to be the future. Anyway, so my father, he was very apologetic to me. He says, I'm really sorry for causing you to lose your job. And I said, don't worry about it. You did the right thing. And I'm, I'll be fine. He was 60 at this time. And I was, whatever, 32, maybe. So we both start looking for jobs. This is 2002. Not a great job market. <laughs> nope. You know, and, and there I was, 32, and, and I had progressed through the company, and I, I had a vice president title. It was a little bit of a kiss of death, right? Who wants a 32-year-old VP in the corrugated box business? And the economy didn't help things. And I had just graduated from Wake Forest two months before this happened. So I'd gotten an MBA. My father and I, we had look for jobs, right? Uh, probably about six months worth. I had gotten wind there was a corrugated sheet plant for sale. I approached that owner. He says, no, Gary, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not for sale. Then two months later, it was sold. <laughs> which means... Which not means, for sale to you. He I'm was already in the process. There was another one that, that came up in, in Tennessee that uh, I think I, that I learned from the guys at American Corrugated and went out and visited with that gentleman had a great meeting, shared his financials, and my father and I are sitting there in the hotel room after dinner looking at each other going, 
there's no way we can afford this. We were like, oh my, it was a great company. So that didn't go anywhere. We kept looking for a job. And you know, one day I just called him and I said, what do you think about starting our own sheet plant? And he says, we certainly know the numbers, don't we? And I said, yeah. And back to my last class at Wake Forest was entrepreneurship and how to write a business plan. So he and I, we lived 80, 90 miles apart. We would meet in the middle and start writing a business plan, going through all the, all the aspects of the plan and laying it all out. And this is a very vivid memory of mine. We get to the organizational chart piece of it, right? Dad, you're going to be president, aren't you? No, I'm not going to be president. I looked at him. He says, you're going to be president. And I said, okay. He goes, because when I retire, I don't want everybody wondering what you're going to be like and what you're going to be about. So I was president from day one. It's pretty smart. It really put me back on my heels. Yeah, I'm, I'm humble for him to think of that. Yeah. I met your dad. We went to Washington, D.C. Yeah. on that fly-in together a number right. of years ago. He was a very generous man. He kind. is. Yes. And uh, how was your upbringing with him? Uh, clearly, you guys had to be tight in order to we eventually were, stay I, in the we business were. together. As I said, we grew up in, in North Carolina all my life, and only until when I graduated college did I leave and go to Florida. But uh, yeah, we were very tight. I was the only child. Um, he had a sister. I was the only child on both sides of the family. He and I were very tight, did a lot of things together, a lot of projects, uh, you know, a lot of fun together. So a great relationship. When you guys were asked not to come back to your job did you guys have immediate conversations about going into business no. with one another how much time was no about six months before i made the phone call to him and said a little bit out of frustration right? yeah you're trying to find work or try yeah. to find something to buy yeah so i tell people i started a box company a corrugated box company because i couldn't find a job <laughs> and that's a true story yeah it really is a true story so you craft this business plan. You have two, I would say, well-experienced individuals, you and your father. You Are you raising some outside money, capital, debt? What so, do you, you have, you've got to buy some equipment. You've got to find a building. Sure. So a couple of things, even before you get to the money piece of it, made a, we made a couple of phone calls. You heard me say that I'd never been involved in sales and corrugated boxes before, which is a very true statement. So I recognized... While I might have had some skills, I certainly didn't have them all. So we made a couple phone calls. One of, the, one of the first ones was to a retired production manager of the place that I formerly worked at and said, how would you like to come out of retirement and make boxes again? He said, I'd love to. Then there was another gentleman that I did work with who was at the second job. I met him in Florida in the paper mill side of things, and I brought him to the company in North Carolina. And he knew what I was doing, and he was a director of engineering, so he was more about machinery and installation and management of the process. And I said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. Are you in? I said, I can't pay you the salary that you're currently making, but I'll give you some sweat equity if you'll join me. He says, I'll do it. And then, and so obviously I had my father on the, the financial side of things, and then... We also had a salesman at the company that I'd worked at that was willing to join us. Now, fast forward a little bit, he ended up backing out, but mm. that's another part of the story. So anyway, we had our team together, right? 
we had all the aspects covered, or at least like we felt we did. So going to the money side of things, we went to the banks with our business plan. We you know, went to, I think it was three banks. Two of them said yes, one of them said no. And we ended up doing a combination SBA, small community bank. I think it's a 504 program. That's how we did it. And here I was at 32 years old. I was freshly married, sold everything I owned. What did you think about all that? We'd been married about a year, and she was very supportive. It obviously was uncertainty to the nth degree, right? I imagine. You mentioned earlier you like to take calculated risks. Yeah. How confident were you this was going to work? I was very confident because of the team I thought we'd put together. Sure. I was very confident. What did you it. project first year sales? Oh, you gosh. Put your plan together. I want to say about $2 million. And here's what I'll say to that. <laughs> so the one bank that said no to us when we presented, he goes, how about cutting your sales in half and tell me how that looks? And I was offended by that. Yeah. <laughs> but he was probably right. Yeah. Looking forward. Sure. So again, at 32 years old, sold everything I owned, freshly married, moved back in with my parents when it was not fashionable to do so. Wow. <laughs> right. Wow. And decided to start a business, trying to start a family. And once all that took shape, one of the first calls I made, once we got the team together, um, I called Ben Liskey at Hare, who I knew. I'd had dealings with him. And I said, hey, Ben, I'm going to start a sheet plant. Can you help me out? He goes, absolutely. This is like the largest compliment I could possibly make, but Liskey's like gum on your shoe. This guy's everywhere. <laughs> in every he's, podcast. He's everywhere. He pops he's up. in every podcast. <laughs> and it's highly complimentary because he is everywhere. Yeah. They go to any AICC meeting and you see him everywhere. So yeah. I, I love he, the man. His legacy continues. Yeah. So as Ben does, he put me in touch. I, I bought a 35-inch flexo folder glue, a 66-inch rotary die cutter, and a giant 74-inch slap-fed rotary slaughter, and then all the other stuff, and that's how I got started. Did you have a place to put them yet? Yeah. So that's another little bit of another story. But So we had, we had gotten the team together. We had signed for the money at that point. And here's another thing I'll say. At 32 years old, I did not have the assets to start a venture like this. My father was 60. He could have hung up his cleats and decided, I'm not going to do this. But I, I think he felt responsibility for causing what happened, I, even though I told him not to worry about it. But I think he believed in the team and believed. He always said he, he wanted to have his own business and never did it. I think this was his opportunity. Um, yeah, 60 with that kind of risk, obviously, where you're going is he's got the asset pool. Yeah. He's about to put it on the line. Oh, and at that point, it, it, you well know, you're signing whatever piece of paper they put in front of you. Yes. I call it double coverage. Personal guarantee by him, personal guarantee by me, personal guarantee by my wife. You name it, we signed it. Right. All to get in the name of getting off the ground. How stressful were those first six months, year? Oh, it was more than six months, but very stressful. As I said, moved back in with my parents at 32, trying to start a family. Very stressful. Two years, no paycheck. My father and I literally took turns mowing the grass at the property, cleaning the plant restrooms, making the deliveries. Did it all, did it all. And then if I go back, if I go back to the building part of it, I, 
you asked me about that and I skipped it. But so we had gotten the money. And right after we got the money, our salesman that we had hired backed out. And Perfect. Like, yeah, I was like, oh, this is a great <laughs> time. And I've never sold a box in my life. And, <laughs> and our sales guy gets cold feet and backs out. But we were already rolling forward, right? I said, I'm not stopping now. We're going to keep going forward. So we'd looked at several properties and we had made an offer to lease a building. Okay, and we're going down that path. And the uh, real estate agent said, hey, I don't want to muddy the water, but there's this building over in High Point. Might want to look at it. Okay. Drove up. Beautiful campus type setting. Sitting on eight acres. Really looked good, right? But I said, it's like 75,000 square feet. I'm like, oh, this is just way too big. We had made an offer on about 40, 50, somewhere in that neighborhood. But then I couldn't get over the fact of what I think it could be, what, how good it looked as you try to attract customers. Yes. And I said, this looks really good. But by this time, we we talked to the bank about it, and they're like, I don't, we're out. You're, you're already stretched out on what you're asking for, right, to get going. So I'm sitting there thinking, and I told my dad, I said, let's make an offer to the owner with him taking part of the note. The building had been for sale for three years. He owned the building. The company had become insolvent. He owned the building, couldn't sell it. He jumped all over it and took the note. And the real estate agent was just baffled. He said, if I'd have known he would have done this, I could have sold it two years ago. <laughs> I'm like, okay, mile in. So we did that. And as soon as we did that, the bank came to us and said, hey, how about write the check to us instead of the former owner? <laughs> I said, okay, glad to do that. Interesting. So two years. What were some of the struggles that you went through? We started with no customers. 2003, correct? 2003. We made our first box. We incorporated May of 03 and made our first box in November of 03. And no customers. So I go back to the, you know, part of the team and my sales guy, my initial sales guy backing out after we had signed for the money, right? After we had gone down this path. So then I go the traditional route and we find a recruiter. And we're scouring the market for sales folks. And I got introduced to this gentleman from the industry. He had been selling for sheet plant for a number of years, packaging services, which now has become Supply One. But his name was Alan Deal. And so we, we had some time together. And he's still with me, by the way, 20 years later as my director of sales. But he heard my story, knew about the team and what I was trying to do. And he said, let me get this straight. You're trying to start up in the shadows of, he calls them, two 800-pound gorillas in the corrugated world. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm in. <laughs> and I guess he enjoyed our passion and what we had to say and where we were at and how we were teed up to do all this. So Was that before you made that first box you had this conversation? Or yeah. So you quickly went to work and found this guy and convinced yeah. him to come. Yeah. When you had said two years, no paycheck, yeah. Your dad as well, I presume. Because yeah. you had to take care of these other guys who had quit their jobs, or were they also floating? I know they were paid out of the working yeah. capital, the, yeah. the line that the bank had done. The only income I had coming in was my wife, Jenny, was working at UNCG there in Greensboro in the graduate department. So that was the only money we had coming in for two years. And back to no customers and just trying to make a go of it. And as I tell people, 18 months. It took about 18 months to really get some momentum. But as I say, the snowball started rolling down the hill 
started getting some momentum, started gaining some mass, and we became a real live entity. In the beginning, so imagine this is 75,000 square foot space with three converting machines in it that you can see all four walls of. <laughs> right? We started with six people, right? And we literally would get up from a table in the plant and go run an order, go sit back down, right? I mean, that was, that's what a start you had. I'm always amazed at the resolve that some of our guests tell about the early days. Yeah. And so two years, clearly it's stressful. Was there ever a time where you just said, this is it, I can't go on living this way? Or No, I, I'm not wired that way. And a lot of that's my upbringing. We're not ones to give up. It's all about continuing to dig, continuing to do the best you can do, to stay on track, to stay on message. You have the team. You have all the pieces of the puzzle, right? It's taking. It's going to take time and consistency. And that's one thing I think you'll find with me is I'm a very consistent person. We all love a home run, right? But it's all about base hits. That's how you get the momentum. Yeah. I have to think, too, that there's something to be said about the long tenure of the dating process with you and Ginny in that had it been six months and you fall madly in love and you, you look at her and say, okay, we're moving into my parents' house and I don't have a paycheck. Yeah. But I think you two knowing each other as well as you did, her having that time of really understanding who you are at your core and you her at her core in sure. terms of her ability to sign up for this with you, sure. I think speaks volumes in that relationship and the way it worked out because those are stressful times. We can look back and maybe the, the image of it is a little bit different than when you're stuck in the mud, so to speak, but I give you credit. I think it's so understated to sit here an hour-long conversation and say, what, well, with two years without a paycheck, living with my folks, with my newly married wife, and it was great. We really just muscled our way through versus yeah. bar of soap being hurled across the room sure. on a Friday evening when sure. you're basically, uh, your entertainment for the night is going to be staring at each other yeah. at, at, what, 27, 28 years old? When we started, I was 32, 33 by the time we made our first box. Pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. So. Yeah. You start to see this momentum. Was it as simple as this kind of the accountant side, your dad's side of the cash flow projections? Was it more about no longer moving from the machine to the table, but people have a full backlog and now they're running this machine almost like for a full week and you're like, okay, we're yeah. starting to cook with some gas here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That momentum is, as a president of a company, when I walk out into the plant, I look and see how many families I'm responsible for. My decisions, my actions of impact or effect every employer and or every family out there. So it's the same thing when you get started, right? I've had five or six people have the faith and confidence in me and what my vision is to take that risk. And so that's really a lot of the reason we didn't take a check for two years is to make sure they got paid, right? To make sure that snowball started going down the hill. And you know, like I said early on, I never had made any sales effort in my life, but I started going out and basically cold calling. I knew who was around and I think they liked the message. I think they liked where I was trying to go with this. One of the, one of the early selling propositions I had was in, in my market, we had two quality producers easily. They did a good job and gave a great price. 
but they delivered it when they were ready. That was, and this, this is 20 years ago now, right? And so I came to market with delivery third business day after receipt of order on your basic type. That got a lot of attention by customers in general. Um, and so that was one of my early propositions that, that gave the traction. On, on top of the fact that I guess people thought I was an entrepreneur or felt I didn't feel like it at <laughs> yeah. the time. And they said, let's see what, let's see what this company can do. What was it? Do you remember the first paycheck when he literally was like, hold on to your hat? I'm about to issue us a paycheck. <laughs> I, I do remember that. Yeah, it, and so. it wasn't a very large one, but at least it was something. Yeah. Right? Give me your, your thought process with your wife. Was it like, oh my God, like it's going to happen. Like I finally feel like this is going to take yeah. off. Yeah, I can remember with the early team, we would get together and have a dinner to celebrate $100,000 in sales in a month. That was a That's big right. deal. But yeah, I'm sure she felt relief when I finally brought home <laughs> a paycheck. So the bank the, that turned you down said, question the $2 million in top line revenue. Yep. What was year one, do you remember? It, he was probably right. <laughs> he was probably right. So... Two years, no check. This sales, this gentleman is still with you. Yep. As you start to see this momentum and you start seeing it, how did your decision-making begin to change? You, all the assets at startup are old. You have to build a team. You have this building that you're probably going to start filling. Did you guys sit down and start strategically mapping or was it really just this organic Let's just keep trying to fill the plant with volume. So I had the one salesman who's now my director of sales, Alan Deal. Pretty quickly after startup, we picked up an additional salesperson from the industry. He had worked for a sheet plant, and he was available. So we picked him up as well. He obviously had accounts that he had called on directly. That was lower hanging fruit than just absolutely cold calling for all three of us. So his name is Tom Slate. Tom definitely helped us, help that snowball to get really going down the hill. And then I enjoyed the sales part of it. And I went to those folks that I knew, whether they be personal relationships or whatever, and, and did my best to earn their business. So yeah, so it ended up being an organic focus. Yeah. yeah. As you started really taking off, I have to imagine there were ups and downs in your business over the course of the 2000s. Yeah, as any business. Of course, right. you get into 2009, 2010, the financial yeah. crisis hits. Were there times in those years following all that momentum that you started to struggle? Yeah, I'll tell you this. One of the eye-opening things I had early on was we had an opportunity of this, in my world, a very large account. It was a million-dollar-plus account, right? And it came to us, and I said, no, I'm not interested. It was a conflict of interest because I was running business for somebody else. I said, no, I have a relationship with them. I'm not going to take that business from them. So they came back to me again and says, if you don't take it, we're going to place it elsewhere. And I was a young company, and I said, all right, I'll take it. Tremendous volume, right, tremendous volume. And just as easily as we got it, we lost it. And when we lost it, I started making money. That really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, my biggest customer has left me and now we've become profitable. <laughs> when I felt like I needed the volume. There's ITW talks about their 80-20 rule and the whole philosophy behind their business. And they, they've gone through many exercises where they come into associations with businesses and they talk about their philosophy. And one of the dynamics that they always talk about is 
that real ability to understand on a customer by customer basis where the where the profits are. And there's so many of those eye-opening experiences that when it's firsthand direct experience like that, your philosophy on how you run your business versus sitting in a classroom and somebody runs you through this analysis, it's intriguing to me that most times it's not, it's really more bottom line yeah. than it is really top line. It's, 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 if you can really understand your costs, you know, it, it, it's probably going to change your, your philosophy. And it really did. And later on, without going into that story, it allowed me to make that decision all over again to, to basically, this time I was in control of unloading a large customer. And I felt good because I had the history in the background yeah. you know, that one time. Joe, you were talking about 08, 09. So certainly those were trying times. But I felt like I had an advantage because we started up in 03 and we stayed lean the entire time. So I felt like 08, 09, people that were overstaffed or, or bloated use that as an opportunity to resize their organization. So we survived that. To this day, we've never laid anybody off. Incredible. Never have done that. Now, 08, 09, it was thin. Profitability was there, but it was thin. But I, all we did was reduce hours. And everybody that was part of your team, everybody that worked for you, they were surrounded by the situation. They lived it. So they understood and could accept you taking them from 40 hours a week to 35. And that's what we did. You talk about your dad when you guys started the company, he was 60. Yep. Taking on a lot of risk. He's still involved in the business? <laughs> we joke, at, he shows up on payday. <laughs> <laughs> How long after you guys started up did he start to phase out of the day-to-day? -day? Yeah, I'll tell you. So I'll tell you an interesting story. You bring it up, it makes me smile. Accountants are very organized, right? Typically. My my father had a date, right? When he's retiring, I'm retiring at 70. And so he went to the point of putting a launch clock on his desk. <laughs> a countdown clock, right? And I'm going in his office and this countdown clock's getting getting close, right? Getting within 30 days. And I'm like, hey, we need to talk about the transition and who's going to fill your shoes. And, well, you don't, you misunderstood me. I'm not leaving. I'm just slowing down. I said, oh, okay. That's fine with me. What I say is you're my cheapest employee <laughs> and I never have to worry about you stealing from me. Yeah. Stay as long as you want. So that, that was literally what we said. Now he ended up staying another, probably about another five years. Was he, was he contributor in finding his replacement? Yes. Interestingly, our bank at the time introduced us to a, a concept and a gentleman. The concept is called fractional CFO and introduced us to a gentleman named Michael Spawn, who, is, who became my fractional CFO and to this day still is my CFO. And he's more my age, so we get along great. What year was that when you're dead? So five years ago, so what is that? 18? I don't need to know the who, but that startup with the sweat equity. Yeah. Are all those individuals, shareholders in the business alongside you and your father? So there was one gentleman that I gave sweat equity just to. One. Just okay. one. And I gave him a piece that, a piece over five years, an incremental piece every year for five years. And if you left before that was up, you got nothing. And he stayed. He ended up staying about 10 years. He's no longer with us. He's doing other things, but he still is a minority shareholder. Okay. So in 2015, I think, is when you 
went out and started looking to acquire and build your business by acquisition. Yep. Correct? Yep. Thanks for that. So short answer is I wasn't looking. So what happened is, you guys know probably I've been involved in AICC almost 15 years now, joined a CEO group. I had my name in the hat for, I don't know, a year or two. All of a sudden, a CEO group gets formed, and lo and behold, two people were in there that one that I had become good friends with. I had no idea he was going to be in my group. It was Finn McDonald from Independent 2. I'd gotten to know him really well, and he was in my group. And then also in our group was a gentleman named John McIntosh. And he was he owned a plant called Creative Packaging in Savannah, Georgia. And so I had a little bit of a tie to Savannah. Jenny moved there out of college and lived there for about nine years, and we dated. I got married in Savannah, knew, knew the town well. So our very first CEO group meeting was out in California, um, and we're at a table having dinner, getting to know each other. I'm talking to John McIntosh a little bit, and he's just talking amongst the group, and he's, I don't know who asked him, but he's, he was probably getting close to retirement age, and he goes, yeah, I've come close to selling a couple times. I've just didn't work out. So I banked to that thought. We had our meeting. We got back home. I called him. And I said, hey, John, did I hear you right? Are you interested in selling your business? He goes, let's talk. So there I go to Savannah, right? And um, it, I'd never done an acquisition before. Didn't know much about it. Me being the engineer, I research it and I read about it and, and go down that path. And it took a year. And John McIntosh and I did a deal. I'm sure Gene's going to have questions on the M&A, but from a personal perspective, I have to imagine at the time you were at a point with Package Crafters where you were comfortable. I don't know if you ever get comfortable, but okay, I'll take it. Com more comfortable in 2003. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> right? Yeah, and I imagine by this time you're, you had young kids. Yeah, so I did. Yeah, well, yeah see, by 15, I had three, three daughters. Yeah. What I'm getting at is, was there something in your mind that wanted to take on more risk at that point in your career with the young family or like how did that all yeah it was opportunity right it was opportunity it was the right space geographically for me i knew the area when i first mentioned it to jenny she said no way you got a company you're, you got three daughters you're right. coaching soccer you're involved in aicc I said, yeah, but there could be worse places to own another company in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> she goes, you're right. I said, yeah, I guess it was just the opportunity. I wasn't looking, and it just happened. One of the keys in business, obviously, is doing a lot of listening. Talking's one side of it, but listening can reap a lot more benefits and a lot more opportunities than just talking, in my opinion. Can you talk a little bit about the value from your own perspective of CEO Group, what you really feel that it brings yeah, sure. So obviously the easy one is it brought me an acquisition opportunity. <laughs> Many of us, obviously, some of us are family businesses, some of us are not. A lot of us may not have a peer to talk to. There could be personal challenges, business challenges, opportunities. You're, in, you're amongst a group of peers. Uh, these folks end up being friends and very likely lifelong friends and great resources. You know, for any kind of question, no matter how small, because there may be a group of 10 of us, one of us has been through it. Very true. So it, I can't stress enough the value and how much I enjoy being part of one of the CEO groups. I read a Harvard Business article some years back when I was in grad school. There's a graph of levels of education and ability to take risk. 
because as you increase your level of education and get into the grad school dynamics and all that, and you understand how to assess risk more clearly, for you to do that is a bit dichotomous to prevalent behavior, which I think is interesting. Yeah, you know, my wife, I was talking to her last night and I was like, I feel like my personality is the type that takes a calculated risk, right? I look at everything, absorb all the data, all the situation, and I make a calculated judgment, calculated risk. My wife goes, I feel like this whole thing's been a risk, right? <laughs> right. That's funny as hell. Three amazing daughters. Yeah. Do you see any future prospects? I say no. I'll be too old by the time that <laughs> happens. For them to take over. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold on and hope. Sure. My, my father said this a long time ago. As a parent, I feel like my role is to drop my child or children off at a level above me. He says, my dad says, my father did that to me. And so I think deep down that was him, part of his, deep in his mind, that's part of the reason we did what we did is he was trying to help drop me off. And I have the same comment, right, is, is my goal is to drop my children off hopefully at a better spot than I've been at. You clearly have a close relationship with your dad when you approached him about the idea of creative packaging. Was there ever any dissension there or was no. it, he was on board from No, there? he was on board. He, he helped me analyze the financials. You said an interesting comment to Joe's question about being comfortable at package factories. What keeps you up at night? Yeah, that changes, right? Anytime in business, things seem a little too good to be true. The shoe's getting ready to fall. And I think we're at a similar point right now, right? Economically, right? We've enjoyed two or three prosperous years. What we've got ahead of us probably won't be as prosperous. So we've been through this. We've been through 08, 09. By no means am I thinking or saying it's going to be like that. But we've got some experience and we know what it takes to survive that. And back to the responsibility of my employees and their families, right? Without a customer, there is no invoice. Without an invoice, there is no cash coming in the door. I feel that responsibility. My decision's not for me, per se. What do you say to 32-year-old in the industry now looking to maybe start his own thing or go into business with his father? What, would you, what advice would you give to somebody that was sitting in your shoes 20 years ago? Yeah, so when we wrote the business plan, we wrote a business plan on something that we knew not something that we had invented that we thought everybody was going to buy. So I would say that to any young 32-year-old. If you want to be self-employed or go out on your own, start out with what you know. That's the easiest path to success. And I'll say this. Again, I had never sold in my life before I started Package Crafters. And I really enjoy it. Now I probably represent half the revenue out of each company, right? So... I enjoy the process and I look back and I say, how are you able to do that? What, what makes that happen? And I say, I go back to my comment about listening. When you walk into a customer, it's, it's not about pitching how great you and your company are. It's about listening to what they need. Then you turn it into educating them and helping them. And there's always a little bit of a wall. So you work to lower the wall to open a relationship. And then you have to perform. And you have to be genuine. That's one of the biggest things, I think. It just starts to happen once you build that trust through those steps. Chartered in May, so you're almost on your 20th anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you very much. 20 years. What point in the business did you feel you started to shift 
where you knew you had to spend some of your time on the business instead of in the business. So obviously the first two years, you're just trying to, as you said, take care of these six, seven people that are working for you and, sure. and, um, and make a living. And there's a transition where you have to start thinking about more high level. When did that start to occur? And has that changed things for you at all? Yeah, sure. Probably when the acquisition became, got on the table. That's when I have to start thinking higher level, doing a little more planning, cause and effect of both companies because I can't be in, I can't be everywhere at one time. So that was the point that you know, the company had started to get a life of its own, if you follow what I'm saying. It was, it was its own entity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was at the point of the acquisition. Yeah. Do you do any sort of regular off-sites with any of your leadership team, or is it really, are you the person who's responsible for that, that crafting? With the sales folks, we do go off-site and have regular or semi-regular meetings, planning meetings, talks, state of the economy, and then it's the opportunity for me to share with them. They're out on the road selling, right? It's the opportunity for me to share with them what I've done, what is coming down the pipeline, machinery, upgrades, improvements, where I'm at. And of course, as a corporation, we have, we'll have at least an annual get together. And I usually give a talk and a lot of gratitude for all the folks on the team and thank them for a job well done. When you try to unpack, similar to Joe's question, getting to this 20-year period, is there a couple of things where you would say this was an extremely valuable lesson that if I could tell somebody, watch out, and this is something that if I could do it again 10 out of 10 times, I would do this exact same thing again just because. Do you have a couple of examples, maybe those? Yeah, the lesson, the really the most eye-opening lesson was the one I talked about earlier where we effectively lost our largest customer and became profitable. And that allowed me moving forward, as I said, to basically fire a customer because I felt it was too risky, right? I mean, walked away from a very large account, but it was the right thing to do. And they were dumbfounded. Great people, great company, but it was too much risk. That's the perception I had. And to do it again, when you're in the weeds, getting off the ground, getting going, you don't have time to step back and reflect, right? And as you mature, as a company gets five, eight years old, you can hopefully have that opportunity to sit back and go, wow, maybe something has been accomplished here. Didn't feel like it at the time. But I enjoy that feeling. Sure. I enjoy making the impact. I enjoyed the acquisition and making those changes and bettering everybody's life at that company. Any regrets? Oh, no regrets. I've had a good ride so far. Still a young man. You got a long yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. No regrets. Sometimes I say, "Did I take enough risk?" And that was my comment back to Jenny last night. She said, this whole thing was risk. Oh, what's interesting to me is knowing you through AICC, the compliments and the traits that you left for your father. Very similar. You're a very humble guy. You are very open, willing to share your expertise, but also an extremely intelligent and savvy businessman. And I think that we shared a dais in, in New Orleans on acquisition. You had done one. I had done 12. I was as fascinated by your presentation as any other because back to that listening, how do I strike a deal that that works well? Curious, 
similar cultures when you bought John's business? Were your experience and challenges being remote and having, because it's not a linear equation. The complexity is exponential on an added facility, and now you're experiencing that and you own it. Yeah. What were some of the dynamics early on that you had to face? It, I liken it to having children. I saved the workload from one to two is triple, <laughs> and the workload from two to three is incremental because you either you don't care if they pick up dirt and eat it, right? Or you know what you're doing, one of the two. So yeah, the workload at the acquisition point went from the workload went from one to four, right? Whatever the number is. But and then I'm 300 miles away, right? So I'm used to being there and being one office next door from whatever might be going on. You have to have the communication. You have to have the fate. You have to make the visits, right? It's, it's interesting. I don't spend equal time in the two. They're equally successful, which puzzles me. Not me. Oh, well. <laughs> because I think you've talked about some really key things. If there's faith in what's being managed on that offsite, I think that is a really nice dynamic that needs to occur so that they can operate with a level of trust to be successful. Yep. I think there are pros and cons whenever you are managing a business where the founder and entrepreneur is located because there will always be your areas of expertise that you lean into that are important to you. And then because it's your business, by virtue that the areas of most primary importance for you are going to be where people run. So, yep. so there's your ability to recognize that, again, speaks to your style, and I think that's important. Yeah, and I'll say this, and this is part of me being local. When somebody comes into my office to discuss something, 95% of the time they already know the answer. So I go back to my plant that's remote. They know the answer. Yeah. They're just not coming in my office. That's great. And I'm, my style is hands-off. I give guardrails. I give advice. I give guardrails. I may throw the flag in once in a while. And it's I'm very open with people's decisions on how to do something, right? The, my saying is, let's work smarter, not harder. If I have an idea and you don't agree with me, speak up. Yeah. Let's just, let's get it done. And is that management style something you've just picked up over the years? Is it some, something you've learned from somebody? Or no, I think it's something that happened I, organically. Yeah, I think, I think it's something that I picked up, right? It's nobody, no one person influenced me on that. One thing I've, I learned early on, when you walk out, when you walk out of your office, you're being watched. And you don't see every set of eyes that are on you. You could go out onto the floor of the manufacturing, have an interaction with somebody about something. Five people are watching you, you don't even know it. So I always, I'm always very cognizant of that. And, and and that how I go to, how I manage and how I give wide guardrails and I don't come running out of the office with your hair on fire. Right. Who, looking back on your career, have been influential to the man you've become? I have to imagine your dad. That's absolutely. Who else would you put on that Mount Rushmore of people <laughs> that have really helped you? Oh, he's, he probably is on Mount Rushmore for me. There's been lots of people that have helped me along the way. There's been people in the CEO group that have helped me to overcome situations or challenges with little snippets of advice. So there's, there's been a lot of different people to have a rock like my father, I would say. I don't have that. It's a collective. Yeah, I would say so. I'm an information gatherer. I like to listen. I like to research. So 
I'm always, there. there is no chip on my shoulder. Yeah. It's interesting that you took such a negative in your career on getting let go and turned it into what you've become today. It didn't feel like it at the time. At the end of the day, I'm way ahead. Listen, I agree with that, but everyone we've talked to, whether it's someone who's stepped into an existing business, someone who's founded a business, someone who's sweat equity their way in, they're all, they all face challenges demanding, both emotionally, physically, and just the resilience and the ability to belief in oneself, I think are themes that just keep resonating. And again, it's easy for us to sit here and talk about 2004 and five, what you did, but it's truly impressive. And it happens as a result, as we said, having somebody at your side that is always in your corner and Jenny and with your parents and your dad. And it's just amazing. So I just a neat story. Thank you. What's next for Gary Brewer? Or what's next for Package Crafters? Where do you see the business going in the next five to 10 years? I would love to make one more acquisition. That's, you know, where that is, who that is, I have no idea. Just like I listened at that first CEO dinner, I'm always listening, right? I'm listening for an opportunity, an opportunity that makes sense, right? I mean, it's if it happens, great. If it doesn't, just that much more my energy is dedicated to the two companies that I already own, right? We all want growth, but I, I've always wanted sound financial growth. And as I knew early on, back to the big customer I lost that caused me to become profitable. Lose a customer and you become profitable, right? That's what it's, for me, this is not about how big I can become. Absolutely not. I, it's about quality of financials for me. It's just about base hits. Um, you know, it's about making key equipment upgrades. I'm a big incremental upgrade kind of guy when it comes to equipment. In the last 18 months, I changed out 60% of my major pieces, all in hopes of getting incremental gains, and I'll be ready for the next volume push when that when we get out of the cycle that we're in now. That's great. Are you, are you in line to become chair of the ICC? Yeah, probably a year and a half or so. After we got Dana and then Matt Davis and yeah. me. I think Gene and I are real fortunate to get to know you. I sure yes. can speak to myself. I'm honored to be a friend and get to know your story. But I think I look forward to your chairman year. One, because I think your story is incredible and it needs to be told to everybody. And you're a very smart man. And I'm sure your theme for that year is going to be special. And I think it's going to benefit everybody in AICC to get to know you. Yeah. and get to know the way you do business. I agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'm excited for the opportunity. I go back to joining AICC, right? So I was familiar with what the organization was when I was at the former employer on a very off in the distance. And then as I got up off the ground and got going, and I remember this day, Chuck Feening with Sumter Packaging called on me, just out of the blue. And at this point... I, I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm too small. I'm not profitable enough. I don't belong. That's what I felt like. And Chuck came in and talked to me and talked me into joining. And I said, all right, I'll do this. And he's the one that really got me involved. And I've never looked back. I've enjoyed it. Meeting you guys and just I enjoy sharing information, as you mentioned. I enjoy helping people with whatever their challenge is. And that's a key part of AICC, right? I mean... We're all in the same industry, effectively, 
but we love to share information. A rising tide lifts all boats. That's exactly right. Breaking down boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.